3: This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. Thank you for listening. And a special thank you to everyone who's donated during our winter pledge drive. We can't do this without you. Coming up this week on the show, the Oscar nominated cinematographer behind the lens for the film Elvis. Miss Mandy Walker. And coming up later this hour, the Oscar-nominated film Argentina 1985. It follows the trial of the Juntas, a historic case in which a civilian court tried former military leaders for crimes committed during their dictatorships. We'll speak with the film's director and one of the real-life lawyers who prosecuted the case. That is in the future. But right now, let's get this hour started with an epic battle. A media empire, an exiled son living on a Colorado ranch, a daughter both praised and ridiculed by a domineering sexist patriarch with a serious health condition. Toss in extreme wealth, a drive for power, a layer of greed. It is not the log line for a premium cable drama. It is the true story of the man born Sumner Murray Rothstein. He became a businessman, a billionaire. And he was a bully. It's documented in the new book, Unscripted, the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family. It's the story of the fight for control of CBS, Paramount Movie Studios, Simon & Schuster Publishing and Viacom, the home of MTV, Nickelodeon, VH1 and more. Viacom and Paramount were controlled for decades by media titan Sumner Redstone through his company National Amusements Incorporated, which also had a controlling stake in CBS, run by the engaging but Me Too-ish Les Moonves. From the early aughts to just before the pandemic, these two companies, CBS and Viacom, and the executives running them were engaged in a battle for power, which broke open due to some only-in-Hollywood lawsuits and the Me Too movement. It's all told in vivid detail in the book Unscripted by New York Times reporters James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams, who researched and reported on the story for three years. They join us now. Hi, James. Hi, Rachel.
1: Hi, Uh thanks for having us.
3: And you can check them out tonight at Rizzoli Books, where they'll be in conversation with Ben Smith about the book that's happening at 6 p.m. So let's talk about Sumner Redstone, who many people know passed away in 2020. Originally Sumner Rothstein, but his father changed the name, and Sumner enrolled at Harvard under the name Redstone. So, you know, while we remember him as a titan, James, of business, he was successful in a lot of other areas as well as a lawyer, he was in the military. What were the qualities that led Sumner Redstone to become such well, a power player?
1: Yeah, he was he, he was brilliant in his heyday. He learned Japanese. He cracked the Japanese code in World War II. But I think you have to say it was his sheer willpower to succeed and to win at all costs that drove him to become a multi-multi-billionaire and, and one of the most powerful men in media history. <clears throat> I think a, you know a formative incident was when he was staying in the Copley Plaza Hotel in Boston when it caught fire. He escaped out a window. He hung by one hand from the window sill as the flames lapped at his and burned his hand, ultimately disfiguring it for the rest of his life. But he survived, and he, you know, from then on, he seemed he maintained he was invincible. He was going to live forever, and nobody should get in his way because he was going to win. Now, not mentioned at the time was there was also a mistress in the hotel room with him, the first of many in a long career.
3: That's just sort of a sort of sets a table for everything that gives you a little bit of everything about <laughs> Sumner Redstone in one place. Um, Rachel, where did he learn this? Where did he get this
2: this will this drive? Um, well, he certainly was a self-made man. You know, he starts with two uh, drive in movie theaters in the Boston area and ultimately ends up controlling a vast swath of media that for a long time shaped the movies and television shows that many of us grew up with um, and shaped our culture. Um, but as Jim said, that Copley f- fire was incredibly formative. And, you know, he had this incredible desire to win at all costs and, and, and also to win, even if it meant that his daughter, who uh, who he wouldn't even allow to beat him in a tennis match, would win. He, he could not, he could not champion his kid's successes if it meant that it would cost him anything and where that comes from boy i bet you know a psychiatrist could really have a field day with that one
3: Jim, you know what? Uh, Rachel touched on something that I was going to bring up at the end of the interview, but I think it's actually good to bring up at the top of the interview. We in the media love stories about the media. But if you could think of a reason why this story is important to the mail carrier who maybe is listening to us right now in his earphones or a bus driver. Why is a story about Sumner Redstone and his voracious appetite to win and his control of the media important for, to think about for the average person?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question, because, you know, frankly, I'm not really a Hollywood reporter per se, but this story goes so beyond the, the those characters or whatever. I think ultimately it is it's a very profound story about the relationship between this highly competitive, successful rich father and a daughter who, like most of us, craved the love and the respect and the approval of a parent. And that runs throughout the story. Rachel and I, you know, commented while working on it that there is there's a lot in literature, in even nonfiction, about mothers and sons, and mothers and daughters, and fathers and sons. But there's not very much about fathers and daughters, and the dynamic there shapes the entire story. I think that's that's number one. And number two, again, we look at one company in great detail, but we don't think it's unique. The level of sexism, of misogyny. The shocking, you know, dereliction of duty on the part of directors who blindly followed a CEO, even when the CEO was charged with serious sexual assault, I think is an incredible window into the failure of so-called corporate democracy and and corporate governance.
2: Rachel, do you want to add anything? No, just that this is inherently a family drama. Um, You know, if you like Succession, you will love this book. I mean, this book is all about human nature and people think about business stories sometimes as being strictly about business but inherently they are people stories they're stories about very flawed people who are driven by all the things that we're all familiar with uh greed the desire to have companionship the vulnerability of old age and all of these very human needs and and wants are what Ultimately, you know, shape the future of a multi billion dollar company. It's really the collision of the Me Too movement meets the corporate boardroom. And we got a treasure trove of materials, text messages, emails, documents. I mean, we've all become accustomed to very manicured publicity statements in the wake of corporate scandals, but we never before have gotten to see what it is like on the inside when you can actually see executives in real time melting down in response to a scandal. I mean, it's really unprecedented. Yeah. James, if you would share, Jim, would you share with our
3: audience the kind of information that you got and sources that came through for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you can't write a great story without good raw material. And I've, I've never in my decades of reporting had so much as we did in this case. Fortunately, there were a number of sources we can't name, but who, who felt that this is a story that should could the facts should not be swept under the rug, which is probably what would have happened if many of them had not been co- willing to come forward. And they gave us the raw material that we needed. We didn't have to rely on their word or anything. They gave us the emails. They gave us the text. I mean, somebody said to me that after reading this, no CEO is ever going to write a text again. They're so revealing, you know, in a way that no recollection could possibly. You see this happening in real time. We got incredible transcripts of interviews that were, were supposed to be confidential. Um, so we got video calls, you know, technology has made it possible now to recreate things in arresting in detail, which thanks to these sources we were able to do. Um, so it is, you know, I think in my experience, it's an unprecedented look at what was really going on behind the scenes of ordinarily very secretive institutions.
3: And Richard, you said about it, this being a family drama. We've mentioned Sherry Redstone, and we'll get into more of that in the future. But he had a son, Brent, who was estranged. Uh, what
2: drove Brent out of the picture? Sumner Redstone was not a loving, doting father. He was at turns abusive. He withheld his love and affection. Um, he got into a business dispute with his son to put it tr- to really mm-hmm. just kind of truncate the larger drama and the son just threw up his hands and decided I would never want to you know I don't want to be part of this anymore and I don't want anything to do with my father and he moved away and the two of them never spoke again um and it's really a testament to the relationship between Sumner and Sherry that despite all of the horrible ways that he was abusive toward her that she still at the end of his life when he really needed somebody to be looking out for him that she actually still cared about him enough to to kind of swoop in and rescue him from some of the people who had moved in to take advantage of his wealth and power. Um, Because this was not, you know, this was not a man who who prioritized having close, loving relationships with his family.
3: We are talking about the book Unscripted with my guests, James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams. We'll have more with both. We'll talk a little bit more about Sherry Redstone, who the villains are in this story. I think there's a race for that and more. Stay with us. You are listening to all of it, and we'll continue our conversation with James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams. They are the authors of Unscripted, the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy. So let's pick up where we left off, James. When we we're talking about Sumner Redstone having to win, what was it in terms of business towards the end of his life that he wanted to win?
1: Well, um, I guess what he really wanted towards the end of his life was to win these women that kept crossing his path. I mean, he he conquered everything else. You know, he I guess his biggest business victory was beating the legendary mogul Barry Diller to buy Paramount Studios. But he now had he had a multi billion dollar media empire under his control. But he'd never stopped you know, wanting to conquer the women that he found beautiful crossing his path. And again, a psychiatrist could look into this. His mother never approved of anybody he dated. He didn't date in high school, you know, whatever. He totally made up for it late in life. But what sets this whole drama in motion is when he becomes engaged to a woman he met through the millionaire matchmaker of reality TV fame, gave her a nine-carat diamond, and then she moved in. Soon after that, one of his ex-lovers also moved in, and the two of them started taking over his life and his business empire, and by the way, came very, very close to gaining control of the whole thing, which is what forced his daughter to kind of enter the fray and try to, like, get these women out of his mansion.
3: It's stunning the amount of money and the the ends, the means he went to to try to get women to be part of his life. Rachel, would you share a story of something, there are so many, (laughs) extraordinary (laughs) Sumner Redstone did when it
2: came to women and having women in his life? So this book is filled with stories where basic of anecdotes and examples of a multibillion dollar mogul basically using his wealth and power to slowly or quickly take over the lives of women that he deems to be attractive, as Jim said. And one of the amazing things about this book is that it's not just the story of the struggle for a family empire. It's also the story is the, the struggle for or the story of, of of how this man's sexual proclivities affected his business mm-hmm. and and. Can you even imagine being a daughter caught in the middle of this? And to answer your question, there was a flight attendant who was on worked on the corporate the corporate jets and um this is a woman who juggled, juggled multiple jobs at once and you know eventually she ends up on the plane with Sumner who just harasses her. The entire flight, you know, says really uh, things I cannot repeat on on public radio to her and she gets off the plane And she never gets a job on the the jet again. And while she's calling up the jet company to try to get, you know, her job back basically and try to get put back on the schedule, which they're just not doing Mm -hmm. for reasons that, you know, are sort of clear but not really, Sumner is calling her and – messaging her and sending her gifts and just dangling her job back in front of her he's basically saying you know let's have dinner and we can discuss it we can discuss the menu on the plane and this is just one of the many examples of you know sumner encounters a woman with far less money and power than he does he decides he must have her and then he uses all the resources available to him to basically take over her life and not give her many options
3: so, James, something that I thought was interesting, and I was curious in your research how you felt about it as you got deeper into the story. There's a story you tell about Sumner Renstone. He's up there in age. And I th- is it Larry King who asked him how old he is and he keeps saying he's 65?
1: Yes, he's blatantly lying.
3: And he just keeps saying it. Now, is he lying or in some way does he believe it? Is he someone who has been able to like, move the world so much to however well, he wants it that he— on some level, believed he was that young?
1: I think it's some of both. I mean, one thing you do see throughout this story is when these men, and they're mostly, they're all men, gain this great wealth and power, they bend reality to their will, whether that's who they're going to have sex with or sleep with or who's going to be put on a TV show. You see that over and over. I mean, he liked to say he would live forever, and um, obviously he has to have known that was not going to be the case. He... He said he was 60s when he was, you know, pushing 90. He claimed he had the sex life of a 20-year-old, which um, we, uh, uh, you know, know in great detail it was not true either, although he certainly had an active sex life for a 90-year-old. Um, so I think it was a combination. But one thing that I thought was very revealing, he told, in fact, the, the woman, that the flight attendant he was confiding in, that the real reason he kept saying that he was going to live forever is that he knew that when he faced his final judgment, all the horrible things he did in life would be brought up and he would pay the price. So he was he was terrified of dying. And I thought that was a rare flash of self-awareness mm-hmm. and insight and a sense that someday he was going to face a reckoning for the behavior that he knew was horrible.
3: So we've talked about his romantic relationships. We talked about his relationship with his parents and with his son, but there's a really important relationship we need to discuss, which is with his daughter, Sherry Redstone. So Sherry seemed to be a reluctant participant in her father's business until she, until she wasn't. Um, what prompted her to get involved? Rachel, why don't you so, start that?
2: So Sherry basically is watching from afar in increasing horror as these women have, you know, taken over her father's life, moved into the mansion. They eventually, by the way, make off with at least $150 million. And Sherry at one point gets a report from one of the nurses that's charged with taking care of her father that that the nurse, that there's there's a lot of really alarming behavior going mm-hmm. on, that, that these women might be committing some sort of elder abuse, mistreating him. And it's so painful for her that she 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 can't even inter she doesn't even want to have communication with the nurse. So she asks her son to intervene to start talking to this nurse. And, you know, as Jim said, these women came very close to taking over the family business. Um and, you know, Sherry steps in not not just, you know, to save the family business and to to keep it from these women, but she also steps in as a daughter who who is becomes increasingly aware that her father might be falling prey to elder abuse.
3: Before, you know, there's this interesting sort of battle for uh, Sumner's favor between his children and between Philippe Dumont, who is an executive, uh, who's a trusted confidant. And some people think maybe the son that he, he always would have one day. How would you describe, James, how would you describe the relationship with Philippe Dumont? And then how would you describe that relationship's impact on Sherry Redstone?
1: Well, Philippe Domont was repeatedly described as Sumner's surrogate son. And the his main quality seemed to be, I mean, he was certainly very intelligent. He was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. He worked very hard, but he was um extremely loyal to Sumner. He did whatever Sumner wanted, basically. You know, he was hired professional. Whereas his son, his real son, would actually push back. His real daughter sometimes pushed back. And I think any of us who in, in families can imagine how painful it must be when you're the real son mm-hmm. to have your father comparing you unfavorably to this, you know, outsider who has become the surrogate son. And, you know, the same thing for his daughter to be, to have pride of place in the family taken over um, by someone who's not even in the family, I think was very, very painful. And, you know, Brant the, the, Uh, The son eventually, you know, just threw in the towel and, you know, retreated completely. He didn't even show up at his father's funeral. They were so estranged. Sherry, on the other hand, you know, I I accept the fact that she always wanted his love. She loved him. She cared about him. Even though he treated her horribly, in examples that we document Mm -hmm. in the book, she kept bouncing back. She had some of her father's tenacity. She had to to confront the obstacle she did and to ultimately emerge in control at the end of all of this.
2: Rachel, what was challenging about writing this story? Well, um, you know, I think that one thing that was certainly made it more interesting was that we were writing it in the middle of the pandemic. And Um, You know, there was just a lot of uh, crazy, a lot of crazy behavior. Jim and I were constantly calling each other up saying, can you believe this? And we didn't have that many other people to talk to (laughs) or a lot of other things or a lot of other things to do. Um, You know, challenging. I, I would say that sort of one of the one of the more gut wrenching aspects of this was Just listening to some of these accusations of elder abuse and thinking like, my God, if this could happen to somebody like Sumner Redstone who should have all the Mm guardrails around him, then it can happen to anybody. And, you know, it might sound a little bit corny, but this book really hammered home that if you what matters is who you have around you in your life to take care of you, to love you, to look out for you, that if there was ever a story that embodied that money can't buy you happiness or love, this is it.
1: And I could just add another challenge was verifying so much of the stuff. And we had a wide range of sources here from, you know, extremely eminent lawyers and business people to one of our main sources is an ex-con man who served time in prison. And needless to say, he actually impersonated the grandson of William Randolph Hearst uh, right out of the town of Mr. Ripley. Now, obviously, you have a source like that. He was completely on the record. You have to be really careful with that information and, and verify it countless different ways, which we were able to do, thanks to many other sources.
3: The name of the book is Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. It is by James Stewart and Rachel Abrams. Tonight, you can hear more about it at Rizzoli Bookstore at 6 p.m. They'll be in conversation with Ben Smith. Thank you for giving us time today. Thanks Thank for having you. Us. This is
0: all of it. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.